You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's not all about dance videos, fun and games. TikTok is once again under fire over security and child safety concerns. Indiana has filed two novel lawsuits against the Chinese-owned social media platform. The state claims that the app misleads consumers by exposing children to inappropriate content and allowing China access to their data. FBI Director Christopher Wray warned about the dangers of TikTok while speaking at the University of Michigan this month. The idea of entrusting that much data, that much uh, ability to shape content and engage in influence operations, that much access to people's devices uh, in effect to that government is something that concerns us. My guest is Fred Kate, a law professor at Indiana University who specializes in information privacy. Fred, this is the first time a state has sued TikTok. So why is the AG bringing the suit? Well, I think there are a bunch of explanations to that very good question. One is I think the attorney general is legitimately worried about some of the issues and particularly the exposure of children to material that may violate state law or may otherwise be harmful. I think another is, you know, attorney generals are almost always thought of as aspiring governors and it's an attention getting thing to do. And, you know, that's one reason why I think sometimes we see AGs go out on their own rather than be part of a group investigation so that they get identified with doing this. And also, you know, I suspect, I haven't talked with him about this, but that he was feeling that the pace of some of the current investigations wasn't fast enough. And that one way to try to move the whole process along was to bring a lawsuit so that then they could start the issue of discovery and getting the information that might help tell them whether there's something there or not. So the Indiana Attorney General is claiming that TikTok misleads consumers, parents about the age appropriateness of its content? Right. So there are two lawsuits. One lawsuit is claiming exactly what you said. And what they're really saying is that TikTok is not behaving consistent with the requirements of the Apple Store and the Android Store so that their labeling of their app in terms of its age appropriateness is not accurate. And so the legal claim there is that they're misleading Apple and Android, but that the effect is to mislead parents and people in Indiana. And then the other claim is that TikTok is claiming that it does not share customer data with the Chinese government, and the attorney general is alleging that they do. Now, that's not illegal to share information with the government. Lots of social media sites share information with the government, including with the U.S. government. The argument would be that it's a fraud to say you're not sharing when, in fact, you are sharing. Is it going to be difficult to prove that TikTok is not describing accurately the appropriateness of its app for children? 
Because whether there's enough notification or whether it's misleading, could that be in the eye of the beholder? It will be very complicated to prove because, first of all, it's not enough to just say it's misleading. You're going to have to meet some other part of a legal test, depending upon exactly which law is being applied. But generally, you would have to show that it's misleading and that it's material, that it's misleading in a way that consumers would care about, and then that it's either not easily detected or not easily avoided. Because, you know, sometimes if you're misled about something, but if you just open your eyes, you can see that it's not the way it was laid out to be then it's okay. So they're going to have to show a lot of things. And a related issue is, is it a pattern of this? I mean, really all filters let something through that somebody doesn't like. And so that's not going to be enough to just show, hey, you know, my 10-year-old son got something on TikTok that was inappropriate. You're going to have to show that this is a, a regular pattern and that TikTok knows about it or isn't acting reasonably to prevent it. And I think that will actually be very hard to show because, you know, anyone who uses the Internet knows, first of all, that offense is often in the eye of the beholder. And second of all, that even the best filters, the best design filters are easily evaded. Now, as far as the second lawsuit, that seems even more difficult to prove. I mean, isn't that something the government's investigating? Right. And it is very difficult to prove. And it's also very difficult What happens even if you do prove it? Because historically, attorneys general have argued that social media, like all other companies, should share information with the government when legally required to do so. And so when the attorney general of Indiana is conducting an investigation and wants a record from, you know, a technology company or a social media company, he expects that they will comply with a subpoena or with a requirement that they share data. And so it's a little hard to argue that he expects that they will not comply with Chinese law or a Chinese demand for data. And so I think this will be the harder case and frankly could get moved, could get treated as a federal question that really has to be dealt with at the federal level. A spokesperson for the AG's office said they decided the danger was high enough and they had sufficient evidence to move ahead with filing the suit. So we shall see what happens. What is the law as far as collecting children's information. Do you need parental permission? And if so, how do you get that? Is it one of those I agree check boxes? <laughs> I think a certain um, cynicism. Um, <laughs> it, it is. I mean, you, of course, are exactly right. And so we're only talking online. There's no law protecting children in the offline world. So the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, COPPA, requires that if you provide services to uh, people under 13, or if you are targeting people under 13, so like you're Disney or you're, uh, you know, you're doing things that would be expected to reach uh, people under 13, then you must take reasonable steps to verify that you have parental consent and you must make it possible for the parent to have data deleted. There are limits on, on certain sensitive data that you aren't supposed to collect. The problem is how do you verify parental consent? And it's a really hard problem. I mean, we've been working on this problem for 20 years, and we haven't made a lot of progress. Because first of all, how do we verify that the person consenting is an adult as opposed to just my child under 13 who's checking the box for me? And then how do we verify that I have a relationship with the child, like I'm the parent or the legal guardian, so that I'm the one who can consent? And, you know, there are lots of ways the Federal Trade Commission has 
experimented with. But at the end of the day, it is still a pretty inexact science and pretty easily manipulated, especially by kids. Because face it, when we're talking about technology, kids are almost always better at it than we are. <laughs> always in my case. Um, so <laughs> what's the right way to deal with this issue? Is there a right way to deal with it? It seems like there's a lot of investigations going on, you know, a lot of irons in the fire. Is there a way to deal with this? Well, you know, if you talk to 10 lawyers, you'd get 10 different opinions on this. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that anyone else has better views than, than lawyers do on this. I do think we're getting to the point that we could really use some guidance, whether it's in the form of rules or legislation from the Federal Trade Commission or from Congress, so that we weren't just proceeding by lawsuit. You know, lawsuits tell you that something you didn't know you were supposed to do five years ago turns out you should have done. But until we have clearer standards, until we know what the rules of the road are. So, for example, do we expect that governments will be able to have access to social media feeds um, in other countries. Uh, I mean, I think we have to expect that. And if we do have to expect it, then we should stop beating up on China for that. I mean, there are other things we can beat up on China for, mm -hmm. but, but we shouldn't you know, have this two-phase standard like we expect you to cooperate with the U.S. government and you know, the FBI sued Apple when they wouldn't cooperate. But if you cooperate with the Chinese government, we think you're a bad actor and we're going we're gonna to sue you for it. We need to sort of straighten that out. And then the, you know, the second lawsuit, um, the one about uh, children having access to inappropriate things, um, you know, I'm enormously sympathetic. But on the, on the other hand, nothing has worked effectively to keep children away from things that reasonable people might think are inappropriate for minors. You know, all you have to do is sit down at any computer and type into Google or any other search engine. You can get anything you want. You, I mean, anything. And so this notion that we're going to have these kind of protected environments that, you know, any parent who thought TikTok was going to be a safe place for their kids, I don't think any amount of law or lawsuit is going to help us there. But we need better educated parents and probably better educated kids. So they, they know, I mean, you know, the horrible stories about, you know, kids who are posting nude pictures of themselves at the request of someone they met online we're going to need to protect kids in that they, they, they learn not to do that as opposed to that they will never be asked for that. Might part of this be solved by apparently TikTok is in talks with the White House to store Americans' data on Oracle servers. Would that take care of the second lawsuit? I don't think it will resolve it. In other words, we spent a lot of time on this uh, in general. I mean, um, you know, where does Google store its data? Where does Facebook store its data? You know, if we just localize the data, that will make things better. Uh, first of all, data localization is a pretty incomplete solution because it doesn't really matter whether the data is stored. It matters where the data can be accessed from. And so even if the data is all stored in the U.S. on Oracle uh, servers, um, are we really saying that TikTok from its head office is not going to be able to access the data in China or in Saudi Arabia or in some other country? And we've got a lot of experiences in and in a lot of experience with this in a related area, which is banking. And so, you know, people say, um, you know, as long as you have a connection to the bank in Switzerland, we'll use U.S. law at the U.S. branch of the bank 
to order you to turn on your connection and bring in the data from Switzerland, even though it would be against the law in Switzerland to do that. And so I, I think we might have to expect China could do the same thing. You know, they would go to the Beijing headquarters and say, use your connection to the Oracle server in in um, California and bring this data in if there's something that they're they're looking for or they're suspicious about. As you mentioned before, these suits are under an Indiana consumer protection law, and they seek penalties of up to $5,000 per violation. I'm not sure how they would even calculate that, but are they looking for a lot of money here? Yeah, um, it is sort of interesting because unlike many lawsuits we see, which basically want you to stop doing the offending thing and to agree to not do it in the future, so they're really focused on the stopping the activity and protecting kids in the future, um, this has a feeling of looking either for money that would, you know, come to the state or money that would help attract headlines. You know, suits for big dollars usually attract more headlines than suits for no dollars or small dollars. And again, it will be interesting to see what a court will do. Again, this is one pair of cases where I think it's totally possible to imagine a court going either way. You know, a court saying, um, no, are you outrageous? You're using a state lawsuit to deal with a, an international um, uh, company where there's not even a clear legal standard that's been broken. Or where someone would say, look, you're, you're, you're harming kids in Indiana, and this is fundamentally the job of the attorney general is to help protect them. Despite what you've said about the problems with this lawsuit, do you expect other attorneys general to sue TikTok as well? I do. I certainly do, and partly because it's the nature of attorneys general litigation that they sort of pile on after one blazes the way others follow. And, you know, we've seen that in tobacco and addictive substances and um, other areas where, where we've seen this type of litigation. And also because, you know, at some point they can combine the cases and so reduce the cost for any one um, uh, office to, to have to bear. And so I could see other people filing identical suits and then ultimately the suits being joined and the, the cost of pursuing it being shared across multiple lawsuits. Any final thoughts about this lawsuit and the ones to follow? You know, I would just say that I think completely obvious thing. So it's, it's so obvious you may wonder why do I feel the need to state it. But I think this is like many other areas, you know, one of those places where there's a, there's a huge tension and a lot of it may really depend on your sort of political perspective. I mean, is this an attorney general grandstanding in the middle of the country? You know, Indiana, most people couldn't even find it on a map. Or is this like a trailblazing critical effort to deal with the safety of children um, when Congress has really let us down and not done anything about it? And you could convincingly make either case. I mean, you might believe one or the other, but I think you could argue either one. And so it's, it's another reason why I think courts are such a poor way of dealing with this, because it shouldn't feel like such a crapshoot. You should actually have more ability to say, look, here are the standards we expect companies doing business in the United States to meet. And if you don't meet those standards, then we're going to enforce against you. But I don't think we've been very clear about the standards. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Fred. That's Fred Kate, a law professor and vice president of research at Indiana University. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. 
the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Since the pandemic began, the U.S. has been using a public health rule designed to limit the spread of disease to expel asylum seekers on the southern border. Title 42 has been used more than two and a half million times to expel migrants since March of 2020. But according to a judge's rule, starting next Wednesday, immigration authorities can no longer use Title 42. This change comes as surging numbers of people are trying to enter the country through the southern border. My guest is Alora Mukherjee, director of Columbia Law School's Immigration Rights Clinic. Give us some context about Title 42. So as you know, Title 42 was a public health order that was enacted in March 2020 at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. At the time, Stephen Miller and other anti-immigrant activists in the Trump administration were looking for a way to close the southern border, and the COVID-19 pandemic offered a pretext for doing so. At that time, the CDC's own doctors and experts said that closing the southern border was not necessary to contain the spread of COVID in the United States, but the Title 42 was rolled out anyway, citing as a pretext health concerns, public health concerns, and it was used to close the southern border to asylum seekers and other migrants who would be immediately expelled upon apprehension. When the Biden administration came to office, the Biden administration continued to rely on Title 42 through early April 2022. At that point in April, the CDC said that expulsions are no longer needed to protect the public health. In a memo issued by the CDC that month, they cited increased availability of vaccines and COVID-19 treatments. Um, But interestingly, the CDC did not make their rescission of the Title 42 order effective immediately. Instead, the CDC waited a number of weeks to make the rescission of Title 42 effective. During that interim period, southern states rushed to federal court, and specifically, they rushed to the Western District Court of Louisiana, a federal court where they were virtually guaranteed to pull a conservative judge. They got Judge Robert Summerhays. Uh, who issued a nationwide injunction finding that the Biden administration's rescission of Title 42 by the CDC in April of this year was arbitrary and capricious. The judge held that the administration should have followed a notice and comment procedure under the Administrative Procedures Act. So that is one legal challenge to Title 42's rescission that was led by the southern states. Now, at the same time, there has been a pending federal court case in the federal district court in the District of Columbia challenging Title 42. 
And in that D.C. case last month, Judge Emmett Sullivan struck down Title 42 and held that Title 42 was arbitrary and capricious in violation of the Administrative Procedures Act. By that point in time, Title 42 had been used to expel more than a million people across the U.S.-Mexico border. Reluctantly, Judge Sullivan put his order on hold for five weeks until midnight of December 21st at the request of the Biden administration. So the big question now is, what will happen at midnight on December 21st? Will Title 42 actually be lifted? What might affect how this plays out? There are a few things that we should keep in mind that may affect what happens. First, it's worth noting that the governors of 19 Republican-led states have asked the Federal Court of Appeals to rule by this Friday, December 16th, on an emergency motion to block the lower court's order lifting Title 42. The other thing that's also happening is that the Biden administration is appealing Judge Sullivan's ruling. And at the same time, the Biden administration is saying that it's continuing with preparations to end Title 42 as ordered on December 21st. It's not only Republican governors, but we had recently California Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom saying that lifting Title 42 could, quote, break his state with this surge of migrants at the border. Is the Biden administration ready to deal with lifting Title 42? There has been a backlog of asylum seekers and other migrants who have not been allowed into the United States for the past six years. Many of them have bad claims for asylum. And what we're seeing now is that there is a built-up demand to enter the United States. People have a right to seek asylum under both domestic law and international law. The United States is a party to the Refugee Convention, which was enacted agreed upon by Western nations in the wake of the horrors of World War II. And we are now living in a moment of massive human displacement. More people are displaced across the globe now than ever before in human history. And there remains a question about what legal and moral obligations does the United States have at this time? I agree with those who criticize our immigration system as broken and flawed, and we need, as a people, as a government, to to develop an efficient, humane, and orderly mechanism for admitting uh, bona fide asylum seekers at our southern border. For example, in El Paso, Texas, there are migrants sleeping on the street and bus stations, local airports, because they can't handle the capacity of migrants at the border. So forgetting for a moment about trying to get something through Congress, which hasn't happened for decades, what can be done about the current situation? Right. Our nation needs comprehensive immigration reform. We haven't had comprehensive immigration reform since 1986. And I suppose I'm a little bit more optimistic than you are about the prospects for comprehensive immigration reform. I have to be. I do this work on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. But I also see the need for increased cooperation among states and municipalities 
so that we can get asylum seekers the support that they need to integrate into U.S. life. You know, across the nation, we're seeing dramatic labor shortages. Businesses, farms all need immigrant labor to continue doing the work that they do to continue supporting the American economy. And we need to get the human beings who have so much to contribute to our country to the places where they are most needed. Do you see the Biden administration making any moves in that direction? I mean, you have governors of Texas and Arizona shipping migrants from those states to New York and Chicago and D.C., So what can the Biden administration do at this point? The Biden administration should make it easier for asylum seekers to work lawfully in the United States. The mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, recently came out in favor of a proposal that would shorten the length of time that asylum seekers need to wait before being lawfully authorized to work in the United States. Here in our city, there are major labor shortages and asylum seekers must work under the table, uh, often subjected to exploitation as they're trying to support themselves and their families. Overwhelmingly, asylum seekers come to the United States fleeing for their lives and wanting to support themselves and their families. Through a change in regulations, the Biden administration can make it easier for asylum seekers to become lawfully employed in the United States. Are a lot of asylum seekers at the southern border coming for reasons of economics rather than reasons that would qualify them for asylum in in this country? Many asylum seekers are fleeing for reasons that would fit within the contours of the Refugee Convention and would fit easily within U.S. asylum and immigration law. That would mean that an asylum seeker is fleeing persecution or fears persecution based on one of the five protected grounds, which are race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or based on their political opinion. But increasingly, we are seeing human displacement at large-scale numbers because of climate change. And so-called climate refugees don't necessarily fit easily within the contours of the Refugee Convention, which was developed decades ago before there was such a great deal of concern about climate-related displacement. And we are at a moment in time where those of us who care about humanity and the future of the world need to be thinking about what obligations do we owe each other as human beings? Are we at a moment where the Refugee Convention is not enough? Should we be moving toward a broader understanding of what qualifies people for humanitarian protections in the case of climate-related disasters. You know, the closest that the U.S. government has at this point to protect those who are fleeing natural disasters, it's a form of immigration relief known as temporary protected status. It has been used to grant protections to tens of thousands of people who have fled their countries after earthquakes or similar natural disasters. But is the question is, is temporary protected status enough for the moment in time that we're living in? I'm curious as to why you are optimistic about legislation, immigration legislation, when 
come January, the House is going to have a Republican majority, and Republicans are expected to make immigration control a major issue. And even some Democrats have voiced concerns about what happens when Title 42 goes away. So why are you optimistic? I'm optimistic because I have faith in the American people. Overwhelmingly, people of both parties have consistently and over the years expressed very high support for legalization for certain categories of immigrants, chief among them are the dreamers. So there is extremely high support across party lines for dreamers. We should be able to pass some kind of immigration reform bill that addresses them. Similarly, across both parties and historically, there has been broad support for bona fide asylum seekers, people who are fleeing for their lives, who are trying to save both themselves and their children from the worst harms imaginable. And I, I think there is room going forward for bipartisan negotiations over these issues. And I have faith. Uh, I know many people don't, but I have faith in the American people's ability to help our nation become the kind of country we wish to be. If we look at just the last few years, we can see that our U.S. government has offered protections to thousands of people who are fleeing from Afghanistan, who are fleeing from Ukraine. So as a government, as a people, as a nation, we try to do the right thing. If you had to guess, what do you think will happen with Title 42? Will it be lifted or extended? It's really hard to read the tea leaves on what will happen with Title 42, given the pending appeals, the emergency motion, Uh, that may be decided as early as this Friday, it is really hard to know. Thanks so much for being on the show. That's Alora Mukherjee, the director of Columbia Law School's Immigrants' Rights Clinic. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.